You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. All right. Uh, good morning, church. Welcome to the Roanoke Valley Church live feed. We uh, hope you are well on this uh, beautiful snowy day. Um, we are here joining online on Facebook and YouTube, and we are uh, so glad that you've joined us here. If you're watching us live, welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you happen to be watching this a little bit later, we're, we're glad you found us, and we're glad that you're tuning in. Amen. So uh, we are in the book of Acts, and we've been continuing to study that here as a church in the RVC, and we will be over in Acts chapter 16 today. Uh, but as you saw on the intro slide this morning, uh, my text title or my sermon title uh, comes from a David Bowie song uh, called Let's Dance. So maybe you know that, maybe you don't. Uh, take a listen to it a little bit later, but let's dance. And anyway, uh, why that'll be relevant, I hope that'll make sense here in a little bit. But um, we have been looking at Acts 15 last week, and we looked at the Jerusalem Council and how that was a, uh, a showstopper moment where there were uh, actually Jewish believers uh, coming down to uh, some of the Gentile territories where Paul and Silas and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel, and they were uh, troubling them in their minds and their hearts by uh, asking them, by preaching to them, by demanding to them that they would not become Christians unless they would become Jews first, by accepting the covenant law of, uh, of circumcision, etc., etc. Um, and Paul and Barnabas heard of this and had a sharp debate, and all the missionaries, all the apostles gathered in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council to issue this beautiful um, beautiful letter, beautiful truth, beautiful message of grace. And we introduced that last week of really making sure that nothing perverts the gospel uh, to lead us down a path of legalism and away from grace-motivated lives, uh, a deep appreciation for what Jesus has done for us spurs us into obedience, spurs us into deeper conviction, spurs us into uh, really uh, you know, being able to uh, go after the gospel in a great way, both letting it get deep down into our hearts, but then also spreading it everywhere we can. So with all that being said, we are going to take a deeper dive into this uh, biblical idea of grace and making sure that we, as we look at Acts 16, really hear the word grace from a first century perspective from uh, these folks where we're going to see Paul uh, move on into Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and uh, hear it from them as to what, what would have been ringing true in their in their ears. So my, my hope from this sermon here of Let's Dance is to help us hear the word grace in the ears of this first century audience. And this will not be a uh, traditional exposition of this portion of scripture. Uh, but it will be very important for us to put ourselves in the time and place of Paul's hearers. So we're going to be looking at Acts 16, verses 1 through uh, 17. And uh, again, we'll be getting into uh, going out of Asia, which is Turkey. Uh, we'll be going out of that, that territory and into northern Greece and Macedonia and uh, look, as at, look into how that part of the world heard grace and how that actually helps us. Amen? So let's, uh, let's go over to Acts chapter 16. I'll have it up here on the text for you. And uh, Acts 16 verses 1 uh, through 17. So let me uh, pull it up here for you so you can follow on the screen and I'll read it aloud here. It says, verse 1, uh, Paul came to Derbe 
and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phygeria and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace. And the next day, we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. And we'll, uh, we'll stop there for now. Amen. So, uh, what we'll see here, and I'm going to throw up an image for you guys so you can set, see all that's happening, all the territory where uh, Paul and his companions are, are moving. That's now Timothy and Silas. And uh, this is the Ignatian, Ignatian Road, which will, if you were to zoom in here on Macedonia, up there in the top left of your screen, uh, you will see this is Paul's second missionary journey where he's uh, leaving Antioch, where the, uh, where the Jerusalem Council, or from Jerusalem up to Antioch, strengthening the churches. We read that in the first couple of verses there, one through five. And then heading over to Lystra and Derby, where they pick up uh, Timothy, <laughs> In, in, in Derby and Lystra. And uh, now we have uh, Timothy with uh, Paul and Silas. And it said there in the text that they're trying to go into these areas uh, of, of, of Antioch and north, but the spirit of Jesus, which is super cool, keeps them from that. And then they're off to Troas. And then now they're crossing uh, crossing this uh, the Aegean Sea up there in your top left, Neapolis, Philippi, uh, Amphipolis, Thessalonica, Berea. Those are going to be some key cities that we're going to be learning about in the next uh, few chapters of the book of Acts. But that's where we're going up here uh, from Troas across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, which is northern Greece. So that's that's where we're going to be. And I want to key in, uh, again, not a uh, traditional exposition, but again, a, a really uh, looking at these next spots, uh, these next spots on their way to Rome. And as we look at this, uh, we're going to be later, as we look in these chapters, we're going to be enamored by how God set all this up. It's going to be beautiful. That's a study for another time. Uh, but he just, again, finished this council on unity. They had produced this message of unity to encourage their souls about this unified message of grace. And right after that, um, you know this has got to be real because in this text, you know, why would this awkward thing uh, come in, right after this, this high point of unity, and then... Uh, Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement, and they part ways. You know, that's got to be real. The Bible wouldn't have included this if they're just trying to prop things up and make it all sound nice and fairy tale ish And this is real. Uh, and then again, Paul wants to take Timothy on the journey. He's carrying this letter 
about how circumcision isn't required to become a Christian. So you just got to put yourself in Timothy's shoes for a brief moment. Uh, you're 17 years old, roughly, and uh, you're about to be circumcised. And you're looking at Paul, um, and they're just like, hey, Paul, can you just take a look at that letter just one more time? Can you just glance over it, you know, read through it one more time? Tell me what it says. Remember, remember, remember. And it's just unbelievable that the Bible puts all this together. And again, if the Bible was carefully curated, uh, there's no way these things would be included. So Paul, uh, in his wisdom there, despite the, uh, the Mosaic law in regards to circumcision not being a, a prerequisite to become a Christian, uh, Timothy gets circumcised. And, you know, the brothers have having uh, men's midweek this Wednesday, and I'm debating uh, having that be our lesson. Again, it's a, uh, wow, what humility for Timothy uh, to go on this mission with Paul, in a sense, that being a, hey, this will be helpful. This is my advice to really help us uh, be effective. You know, let's uh, let's let's knock this out. Woo. So uh, there they pick up Troas. Some uh, just some details here for you guys to uh, chew on, because this is all kind of a launching pad for a lot of the, the rest of the text. Uh, as they pick up Troas, note that um, the personal pronoun, or the pronouns change to uh, we in verse 11 from Troas, we put out to sea. And I think that's significant because this this book is uh, is all put together by Luke, and the belief is as they went to Troas, they actually picked up Luke here. So from this this point on, uh, you're gonna you're gonna hear the shift to we, where it's now Timothy, uh, Silas, Paul, and Luke are heading up into Macedonia, which is a a, a cool detail. Hopefully, uh, that's cool for you. But um, we're gonna key in here, uh, specifically here in verses 11 uh, and 12. It says there uh, that they went to Samothrace. Uh, you saw that on your map. And then the next day to Neapolis. And then from there, they traveled to Philippi. And uh, we want to talk about the significance of Philippi quite a bit because it's a Roman colony you see in the text, the leading city of that district of Macedonia. So again, uh, this, this beautiful colony that is Philippi, and it's only designated as this just this one time here in Acts chapter 16 as far as Philippi being a Roman colony. They're actually saying saying that. And because of that, that really should uh, key, our, key our ears into the big idea I have for us this morning as to what did Paul's audience there in Philippi, a Roman colony, what did they hear and understand and believe and how do they respond to the gospel of grace? And uh, specifically as a Roman colony would. Uh, we know that Paul was sent out, committed with him to the, the gospel of grace. So he's bringing this gospel of grace, and it's key for us to hear all that from their uh, perspective. So they're now going to have to take the, or hear this gospel, make sense of how the gospel, uh, the grace of God, uh, is, bent, is meant, to, meant to change them and bring them uh, to a glorious place. And for us, we want the gospel of grace, as we talked about last Sunday, to bring us to a point of this depth of motivation that we can live lives for Jesus in this unshackled, uncapped uh, life of obedience, overflowing with eagerness, uh, all for the sake of Christ. We want that. And there's no better place in our New Testament than landing in Macedonia, northern Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, these next few texts that we'll see, and really let that, from a historical standpoint, show us how they understood grace to mean, and to show us how to respond and live out the grace of God. So in Philippi, a couple historical facts. This city was established in 160 BC, uh, but it really was established after the assassination of Julius Caesar in the mid-40s BC. And it was right after his assassination 
that there was, uh, you know, as assassinations tend to do, bring just chaos to the city. Uh, a pandemonium broke loose and civil war, ultimately. And uh, two guys, historical figures that you guys know, if you know uh, William Shakespeare and, uh, and his, his, uh, his, his book or his uh, story of Julius Caesar, you're going to be introduced uh, to, to some guys uh, there of, uh, of, of Cicero and, and Seneca. So uh, here they are here. These are your Cicero and Seneca characters. And uh, at that point, you know, Cicero and Seneca are going to highlight these, the histories of all of these things. Uh, as these historical characters clash in the Civil War, I'll come back to that image, but it's Brutus and Cassius, and uh, they're there, they're together in a sense, and then Mark Anthony and Octavian, Augustus. So in that, in that play of William Shakespeare, uh, he names these main contenders uh, for the throne of Rome. You know, Brutus and Cassius and Mark Anthony and Octavius. And they have these scuffles, these civil war in Philippi, in, in the city of Philippi, right here in Macedonia, where Paul will, will be in 42 BC. And Mark Antony and Octavius Augustus prevail. And those two men prevailing, you know right off the bat, you know, what's going to happen to these two other men uh, who killed Julius Caesar, by the way, and then who are now trying to uh, kill these two and take the throne. What's going to happen to all of them? And what's going to happen to all their soldiers? And the truth is, Typically, when you're in a losing effort, you're vanquished, you're beheaded, you're killed, you're, you're executed. And the leader of those two upstarts, you know, they were. They knew they were going to be assassinated, so they just killed themselves. Uh, so at that point, their leaders are dead, and now they're wondering, what's going to happen to us? It's just a ticking, ticking clock for their lives. Soon, they will all be executed. And you know what Caesar or Octavius, Caesar Augustus, uh, did instead here? Instead of having them beheaded, all these soldiers that were on the, uh, the rebellious side, he gave them three things, honor, land, and citizenship right here in Philippi, right here in Macedonia, this Roman colony. Ten years later, Mark Antony and Augustus clashed, and they decided to have another civil war, guess where? Right here at Philippi, same battlefield. And Mark Antony was on the losing effort that in that war. And his troops were spared again. And those troops, once again, by Octavius, Augustus, was given uh, his, excuse me, Mark Antony's troops were given land, honor, and citizenship. So you have an entire city here in Philippi of people who are the most grateful people that you could ever imagine. They knew that they were rebels, they knew they deserved death, they knew that they should have been killed, they knew that they had no claim to Rome, they, they killed Caesar, they went up against the next Caesar, and then at the end of the day, that Caesar, their Lord, was a benefactor and gave them grace, gave them land, honor, and citizenship. These people understood what it meant to be grateful. So the, the founding of Philippi is a full city that understands grace. And Paul uses in his, in his letters as he writes in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, as he goes about, he uses the word grace quite generously. Not liberally, but generously. And the word for grace is this word charis. And there, uh, I'll pull this up for you. Charis. It, it's 
Again, the word for grace. And there's a reason for us in 21st century and even Western Christendom uh, that we don't really understand what charis or, or grace really means. And it's because we have that modern day Christendom that uh, what's done to grace has been actually quite nasty. And the Bible is actually very clear about what modern day Christendom has done to grace should never have happened. And specifically what has never uh, should have never happened can be found in Jude chapter or chapter 1, but it's just Jude 4 because there's no chapters in, in the letter of Jude. And it's there, that text in Jude 4, it says, They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus our only sovereign and Lord. So Jesus, in their minds, twofold, Jesus isn't the only way. That's kind of one thing Jude was, was referencing. But then also on top of that, they're perverting this greatness of grace into something that allows you to have a license to fornicate, a license to lie, a license to be impure, a license to cheat and steal and kill. And that's that's what they were saying, is that not only uh, that's what, what, what we believe, but you can do that. And the Bible is very clear. That's exactly what you cannot do to grace. And in modern Christianity, the best that what the best that we could do is to make to try to make it more beautiful, more wonderful, more expanded, more marvelous. Uh, was to tell teary-eyed stories, and I did this all through high school. Teary-eyed stories about how egregious, willful, disgusting, uh, repeated sins that I committed over and over and over again. But then to to just blossom into great joy that you know what grace. It's like a credit card that I can just keep putting it all on that. And someday, you know, Jesus is going to pay the bill. And the blood of Jesus is big enough for all of that. And I would question anyone who didn't uh, take that approach to say, you know what, are you limiting the grace of God? Uh, and that was the storyline and is the storyline of modern Christianity. Are you with me? If you are, put something in the chat so I know you're, you're following along. But uh that's kind of modern day Christendom, and, and you or I are not above that, and none of us are. Um, but we know as we wrestle with how can we be grace-motivated people, is that no wonder we're left with this thinking. And maybe you've asked yourself this question, or you've spoken to someone who has, is, uh, is like, Man, I just don't know if I'm motivated by grace. I don't know if I really understand it. I don't know if I get grace. And there's no question to me if we take kind of the, the banner of, the licensure to sin, uh, or, you know, it's all good. It, no wonder we're not motivated. Uh, you know, no wonder we're not. We're, we're more thinking, I'm not motivated to do that. I'm not motivated to follow him more closely. I'm actually more motivated to think that I can get one over on God. I know I've been there. And I'm sure you have too. You know, it's that kind of covenant of, you know what, licensure, free, free grace, wonderful grace, is the biggest loophole ever. And we think, and others think, that you can just kind of live and do whatever you want to do. And certainly the grace of God is big enough to handle all those. And uh, woe to us if we limit the grace of God. And that, the hard part is, is that's the culture around us. But that's not the culture here in Macedonia, which is why I want to take the time to preach this lesson and teach this lesson to help us to hear, once again, what did they hear when they heard Karis? What did they hear when they heard the, the sense of grace, caris coming their way? Not a credit card, not sin it up, not how wide, how long, how intentional can I be in my sin and God's going to cover all of it. 
Um, and I hope that you and I don't have a limited view of the grace of God. Um, but what did it really mean? And maybe you're wondering, you know, did Paul, as, uh, as we jump into this uh, gospel of grace and as he's committed to go and preach all that, maybe he is, you're thinking, maybe he's informed by the Old Testament. And uh, the truth is, he's, he's kind of the one that really does coin the term uh, in such a way that it becomes a divine term, meaning it's going to be, it's in our, it's in our Christian vocabulary for sure. And if you do a word search of this word charis in the Greek Old Testament, uh, you're going to see it come up about 70 different times. Uh, and every time it's, it's referenced as an, idi- an idiom. And if you're not an English uh, major or you're not really savvy in all that, an idiom is kind of like, hey, it's raining cats and dogs or it's snowing cats and dogs this morning. Um, but where, where it was referenced, the idiom that's used uh, the 70 times in the Old Testament was to find favor in their eyes. Uh, that's what charis was, to find favor in one's eye, to kind of be few, viewed positively, uh, that they look favorably upon you. And that's the way it was used in the Old Testament. And that doesn't really inform us whatsoever to any covenantal conditions uh, that we see in the covenant of grace. That doesn't really reference us or point us to a, a, a relationship with the Lord. Um, so we know Paul wasn't using this with an Old Testament influence. And and most people believe, and most scholars believe that that. Paul started to talk about charis in this sense was because of this Roman colony, because of Philippi and Macedonia, because of their understanding of how he could get the gospel through to them uh, as they understood grace so intensely because of the founding of Philippi and those historical stories of what I shared with you just a bit earlier. So none better than this community here in Philippi of retired soldiers who knew authority, knew obedience, knew duty, but they also knew charis. They also knew grace. They knew that they deserved death. They knew that they were this, they, they, they didn't deserve any type of grace, honor, citizenship, land, future, an establishment in Rome. They knew, they knew they deserved none of that, but yet they had all of it out of the courtesy of a benefactor, a gift giver to them, a Lord that bestowed all this upon them. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you got these guys, Cicero and uh, Seneca, who goes on to explain a lot of this truth uh, in this secular society around the same time, actually, of Paul's life. 4 BC to 65 AD is when Paul lived. And uh, these two gentlemen, particularly Cicero, kind of lived uh, around the same time. Uh, Excuse me, Seneca lived around the same time. So these guys are very much contemporaries, uh, and they're also consultants to to the Caesars, they informed the consult, the informed the Caesars uh, again, kind of a, an ally, a, a, a whisperer in his ear. So they, in their writings, help us to hear uh, more of what our 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 audience here in Philippi what they heard when they heard the word of grace and what they spoke about. Uh, that's really a beautiful image. Is the is the story of the three ladies and uh, that grace was like a dance of three beautiful coordinated, uh, wonderful, prestigious ladies, a a coordinated dance, the three graces. And you can find this uh, out in the courtyard of of Henry VIII in in England. Uh, You can find this on on, uh, mosaics all around around the world, and it's a coordination. And uh, as as they shared about this, this is the image that they said that the Roman colonies would would have in their mind's eye every time charis or grace was mentioned. So this doesn't come to our minds, but this is what came to their minds. And it's these three ladies dancing in a continuous circle, 
beautiful in every way, and it's an ongoing dance that never stops. So what we're going to do is break down kind of the first woman, second woman, third woman, and how that can apply to our lives moving forward here. So amen. Hopefully uh, you're, you're with me. <laughs> and uh, yes, thank you. Um, yep. It's uh, hopefully you're still awake. So grace does not have a singular effect. It actually has a triple effect for everyone living there in Philippi and Macedonia. So you're given calories, land, honor, citizenship. So the first offer is the first woman in this dance, and she is better known as the giver. And she represents the gift given to us, to you. We didn't, uh, that, that benefactor, that gift giver didn't have to do it. They came to the means or they had the means to do it. It wasn't anything out of our uh, anything out of what we deserved, anything we did to deserve it. There was no merit on our sense, but nonetheless, they gave it anyway, a free gift so that so much so this free gift was so overwhelming that our collective draws, jaws should <laughs> drop jaws. That's what I said there. So the second, uh, the second woman uh, would have been the attitude, the attitude of the person who received the gift. So the second woman in the dance is, represents the attitude of the, benefit, the beneficiary, the one who received the gift, you and I. And it all has to do with attitude. And there's sense there that, God forbid, we should ever be like meh to the gift. You know, the meh emoji. We should never be that. And it, it's that attitude that breaks the cycle of grace, that breaks the dance. And it's the gratitude that the second uh, lady represents, that it's, a, it's an attitude of gratitude that's legendary, like gratitude just bursting at the seams, uh, giddy as a schoolgirl, just can't wait, uh, and it develops a radical change, kind of a la Christmas story, Ebenezer Scrooge, oh my goodness, generosity pouring out of every seam, and they owe everything to that moment of gift, that gift came their way, everything they owe to that moment to give thanks to that to that truth in their lives. So that reception of charis is also the known, is known as Eucharist, which is where we get the word thanksgiving. So as we just took a communion, that cup of thanksgiving that Jesus passes out to his disciples in the upper room, uh, give thanks, remember that, that type of, oh my goodness, attitude of thanksgiving is meant to change our lives. We do that every Sunday to help us to be uh, in this spot of receiving an unbelievable gift that develops an unbelievable attitude of gratitude. So that dance of grace, that's the second one. And uh, the third aspect of the third woman is the immediate, catch this, the immediate eager and earnest desire to be able to reciprocate. That means, oh my goodness, now I have this, I can pay it forward. I can, I can extend this grace to someone else. And the term that Cicero and Seneca used was that it was a reciprocal. Whoa, that doesn't sound like grace. What do you mean? Reciprocate? Mm, is this kind of like a, uh, a, a an oblig obligation? But it was these three words, reciprocal, proportional, and obligatory. And obligatory kind of sends little chills down our spine, our Western minds of, oh, if I'm obliged, if, it, if I have to, if I'm supposed to, and it's just duty, that doesn't sound like, you know, kind of welling up in my heart. What's up with that? And I think we wrestle with that. But that's the reality of all this. Uh, and it might not sound like grace to you, but in that society, it would have been the most horrific thing, the most horrific ending for you to be and for me to be an ingrate, to be ungrateful, to receive all that, 
to claim Thanksgiving. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But then not use the rest of your life and all of your resources and all that you are to make Philippi great. To then pour into this great Roman colony and pour into its people to make Philippi great. So again, recipients of grace. We've received that in Christ. We have thanksgiving. And now we get to look at these people who would have been proud, now proud to be a Roman citizen and make Philippi great. And on and on and on it goes as it's meant to cycle around in this beautiful dance of grace. So the folks wrote about this, said this was the fabric of the Roman Empire, that grace keeps all of us together. And perhaps there are moments where you can recall of, oh my goodness, I, I can remember grace, you know, obviously as Christians, perhaps uh, for sure, but then also other areas of great generosity that's come your way that's like, oh yeah, I can remember just being so uh, motivated and so welled up to, to share. But then we also can recall moments where maybe we let this cycle break and we've done that. And Seneca quotes here that gratitude was not optional for honorable people, but rather absolute duty. He goes on to say the person who intends to be grateful even why he or she is receiving, should turn his or her thoughts to returning the favor. It is the practice that constitutes the, the ultimate bond of human society. You know, in Roman law, there was no Roman law that, 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 that uh, since there was no Roman code or Roman law or response to someone who breaks the cycle of grace because it was so unimaginable. Uh, we don't need to create a law for someone dropping the ball on their reciprocation of grace. And that's convicting to me. It would have been the most dishonorable thing one could do. So that, that image of grace can be better captured, I think, in this... Uh, in this um, let me see. Let me back up here, guys. Uh, in, these, in this flowchart. Who doesn't love a flowchart? Make it a little bigger for you. Uh, so you have this flowchart of... of Again, free gift given. We see that there. Free gift given. Thanksgiving for the gift. And then generosity con continues over and over and over again. And that's the cycle. That's the cycle that you and, you and I are meant to be a part of. And uh, I think for us, you know, it's good to think about. And it's good for me to think about what aspect of this cycle might be lacking for you. You know, as we consider this, it's wor worth introspection for sure. You know, the Philippians and the Macedonians were tremendous examples of grace. You know, it's not random, but biblical examples in Philippi. As you read your New Testament, there's going to be more and more instances where Macedonia and Philippi actually get elevated, lifted up as, as tremendous uh, examples of responding to the grace of God. And we can take one from the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, as the Corinthians are being encouraged uh, to take care of the Judean church that's fallen on hard times, they've been stripped of their resources. They poured out in a lot of these missionary journeys and the bolstering and boostering of the church. And it's there in 2 Corinthians um, chapter, chapter 8, verses 9. And, and there, Paul, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. You know, this is no small gift. Not a simple gift. You know, you think about this, and this will be a, a story, a metaphor that will not, you know, even get close to the reality of what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But imagine, uh, imagine, imagine being, uh, you know, 
someone giving their their liver, you know, their liver to you. And, and, and not just that, but in order for them to um, pay for the surgery because you couldn't afford it, they, they sold everything they had to pay for this liver transplant. They uh, cashed out their, their retirement that they'd been saving up for 30 years. They, they improvised in their lives so that they could pay for this. And not only did this liver come to you in this surgery that you could not pay for, uh, but it actually came from their own son. So from their son to your son, they became impoverished so that that surgery could occur. And now you got to think, what's your attitude towards that family? You know, if that family were to have a need, how would you be responding? Uh, would it be dutiful? Would it be like, ah, oh, I know it's, I'm supposed to do this. It would be like, oh my goodness, I can't wait. I, I knew they would. Here's the moment. And there'd just be this pouring of response. And that metaphor, and you can think of any other ones that you like that, that does it for you, that metaphor of someone giving the, the liver of their son to your son so that you can leave and them paying all of it, that just falls falls short to the, to the reality of all that, as this passage says, all that Jesus did to make us rich. That Jesus' poverty was to come from heaven and become man. To walk as a human. To not only be walking as a human, but to undergo all the suffering. To deal with all of our sin. To die a terrible death at the hands of the Romans because of our sin. All of that so that we could become rich. And it says there in that text that that is uh, later on, or actually earlier, that results in an overflowing thanksgiving to God. And uh, here this next verse there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. A little bit uh, earlier, it says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace of God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their understanding. Oh my goodness. Or, or excuse me, beyond their ability, not their understanding. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us also. Oh my goodness. This convicts me to the core. And I hope it does for you too. So again, this overflowing generosity beyond their means, but they begged for the opportunity to do so. They begged, and it was those Macedonian people, our brothers and sisters, who understood Kari so well as Romans that they just, they, they just couldn't get up. They couldn't get giving fast enough. Welled up in rich generosity. The grace of God, even in the midst of severe trial, didn't stop them. Overflowing joy, extreme poverty, poverty welled up in rich generosity. You see the cycle there? You see it? That's exactly what we've been talking about. There's a gift. There's an attitude of gratitude and then overflowing joy. They're in their own poverty, welled up in rich generosity, gave as much as they were able, and pleaded for the privilege to serve God's people. First to God and then to people. And that's the cycle. That's how you know we get grace. And when we get it, we see no smallness in our Christianity. We don't half-step it. 
We don't just butt up to the, to the edge of comfortability. We don't just say, ah, yeah, that sounds good enough. It, there's no smallness in our Christianity. We know more so of what it was required for us to have what we have in Christ, to know what it was, what had to happen to Jesus so that we can have this, this land, that we can have this hope, that we can have this honor, that we can have this citizenship in the heavenly realms, that we have the security that when we go before Christ on judgment day, there is joy abounding in joy, no insecurity whatsoever. That is our gift. But there are so many things that rail against us, church. So many things that rail against our heart that keep us from really getting to this. Getting this. And we know there's a couple things. One, it's, you know, who we thought we were before Christ. You know, kind of underestimating our own goodness. Thinking that we weren't that bad. Or we compare ourselves to other people. That limits our, our view of how much we needed the gift. And how much we appreciated it. Recognizing our poverty. Our 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 rebelliousness like they did so that when they were spared, it welled up in great joy. They knew they should have been killed. We knew that we, that the penalty of sin is death. And we can underestimate that reality of how much we needed a savior. And maybe not at first, but as we go along as Christians, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, we can underestimate how much we needed a savior. You know, we can also underestimate God's goodness that we can underestimate the reality of what we have in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ, that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. It's not God looking at you and he knows you're a mess and awful and Jesus protects you from God. No, he's not shielding you from God's wrath. He sees you as Jesus. He loves you tremendously. And that hope is etched in stone. The power of his Holy Spirit is in you, the steadfastness, life-transforming, joy-injecting, anxiety-abolishing, that's meant to inform us as we walk every single day. Do you, under, do you underestimate that? I know I do. But welling, just thinking about that, letting that you know, spur in us as Paul prays to the Ephesian church to know how wide and deep and high the love of Christ is. And we know who God is. So let that inform us. But here's the worst of all, church. It's the big E word as we come to a landing here. It's the word entitlement. You know, what destroys community more? What destroys our response to this beautiful gift more is entitlement. And I think we got to take the time to expose our own entitlements. You know, I know I want to I honor God with, with everything that my eyes see. But am I entitled to <clears throat> high-speed high internet? Am I entitled to the gym? where there's temptations there? You know, am I entitled uh, to, to being able to have uh, all these computers in my house where I can access it? Am I entitled to a smartphone? You know, in so many ways, the entitlement undermines uh, my gratitude. It undermines my, uh, my desire to ultimately give in a great reciprocal and unfettered, an unfettered response to the grace of God. And it steals and robs and undermines the honor uh, for what Jesus has done in all of us. You know, I preached this last Sunday, but it's Titus chapter two. The grace of God informs us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright, godly lives. You know, it's meant to do that. It's meant to launch us into obedience. It's meant to launch us into a greater righteousness. It's meant to launch us into, into duty for Christ. Here am I, send me, all of that. But the challenge is in our self-esteemed culture that's propped us up unnecessarily kind of all makes us unequipped 
to handle this reality that, you know what, we need a savior that, yeah, I'm, I'm not so good. I'm not uh, daddy's little princess. Or I'm not daddy's all-star. You know, that, that's reality for us to be able to see ourselves truly so that we can appreciate who God has made us. And despite that, God just keeps training his love upon us. He fixes his eyes on us in an unrelenting way that's meant to absolutely transform us, renew us, and deliver us from all these things that we don't want to do and think and be anymore. And I believe Paul goes on to say in his letters, I know he does, that he did more than anyone else. Not because he was so great or so disciplined, but because he was the worst of all sinners. He saw himself for who he used to be, and that motivated him out of charis to go and live a relentless life for Christ. So grace is meant to launch us every day. It's a gift that was given. You know, we got to contemplate always how much it cost. And then the expectations that were built into the community of grace. Expectations. That's not a nasty E word. Entitlement is, but the expectations are. Then we got to look at our entitlements. And I know COVID and being in our own homes has created that entitlement more in my heart than ever. My space, my time, my my new schedule, my new my new uh the decisions that I've made that have kind of been entrenched into my routines. But we've got to look at this uh, uh, through these our brothers' and sisters' eyes as they heard it to launch us to great reflection and specific direction. So what can I do? Here's a question. What can I do for the Lord for all that he's done for me? That's a great psalm where the psalmist asks, you know, what can I do for the Lord? Let's talk about that in our conversations. Let's ask God in our prayers. Let's think about that in our quiet times, our times with God, so that nothing would diminish the work of the Holy Spirit. So some practicals. Carve out time to pray and to worship and sing songs to God this week. You know, carve that time out. Find space to d- dedicate the mental energy and the space and the bandwidth to know God more through His Word. So that we can have our entitlements exposed and we can have our love uh, you know, fueled so that we can appreciate God's grace again. You know, Think about grace in a great way so that we can come up with a, a laundry list of, of, of ways that you're excited to give back to God's people. The ways you're trying to figure out hospitality. The way you can extend charity when you feel offended. That you can extend grace when you've been sinned against. When you can extend the gospel through our trust, through our gifts, through our support to maximize the, the community of Christ to build God's church up here through your gifts, through your, through your finances, through your time, and through your energy. Practically think, once again, letting grace inform you as to how you share your story, your testimony of how you became a Christian and what God's doing in your life right now through grace. You can reflect So much so that you can be prepared to share that with someone this week who's going through difficulty. Not share how you've got all together or just an invitation to church, but to share how God's grace has impacted your life, helping you become a Christian and helping you now. All those things can be funneled to the glory of God. So let us take note of how Kari's grace was brought to these Roman colonies, to our brothers and sisters, and let that grace inform us as we launch into a life and let us think about it as the RVC, as a community to never let that dance, never let that dance end that the invitation is out there. As we conclude back to the sermon title, let's dance, let's dance together. 
Let's dance with our wonderful gift giver in Jesus, our wonderful God. Let us have the attitude of gratitude. Let's dance with that attitude, overwhelmed by that gift that we didn't deserve, but we're bestowed honor. We're, just, we're, we're, in, we're given great charity. We're given great security and citizenship with Christ. And then let us dance as we move to to give that, get that grace to someone else over and over and over again. And as we give grace, God is excited to give more grace. And then that is more, uh, more generosity and more and more and more and more. So it goes. Let's dance, RVC. We've been given so much in Christ. As we continue our study of the book of Acts, let this wonderful grace inform us as we move forward. I'm excited to see what God will bring in our hearts, and in our communities as we dance together. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a farewell slide here for some more information. We love you, and we'll see you next week.